This message was preached by lead pastor Tony Colomb. It is our hope and prayer that this message is a blessing to you and encourages your walk with Jesus to grow deeper. Thank you again for listening to this week's sermon audio. Good morning. Did you see that incredible move of, of athleticism just then? You might have missed it because it was so fast and incredible. I don't think I can replicate that, Matt, but thanks for believing in me. I appreciate it. My notes started to fall, and I snatched them without even thinking twice about it. I'm pretty proud of myself. Thank you very much. People don't think that folks who truffle shuffle for a living can uh, be athletic. Well, ha! Anyways, um, <clears throat> that has nothing to do with anything. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for waking up and getting going. I know when we lose an hour of sleep and you wake up to that... It's not incredibly motivating. I was talking with Danny out there, and it was like, man, 42 degrees this morning in the truck and just that heavy mist. It's like, to me, the worst weather. Like, I'll take 20 degrees and sunny any day over 42 and heavy mist. Any day. But (sighs) coffee is hot, and you're here, and we're going to talk about the Bible, so it's a good day regardless. We are going to take on a huge chunk of scripture this morning, like chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you're the type who read ahead because you've been writing and all that, and you've got your little card and you know what's coming up, you're probably thinking to yourself, ooh, there's some real stuff in here. There's some real humdingers, you know, in this passage, and I can't wait to hear what Tony has to say about that. Guess what? I might let you down. Because there's way too many little things in this chapter to cover here this morning. And I had a practice run out in Napa last night for Corey, and I went way too long. Like, I just saw I had to cut some more stuff out this morning. But I'm setting this up to be, like, encourage you to spend more time this week researching this chapter on your own. Uh, We've been talking about the Bema Discipleship Podcast Throughout this entire process, it's been a good tool for a lot of us to learn more and just kind of have some supplemental stuff throughout the week, along with whatever commentaries and things of that nature. I think it's good for you to not just take what the preacher says, but to also do your own homework throughout the week so you can grow and learn. All that being said, season three, episode 121 speaks on this chapter, and he goes into a little more detail on some of the sticky wickets involved here in this chapter. So again, don't get all bummed when I pass right over something that you're so anxious to hear an explanation on, and you get nothing, nothing about it today, all right? We're going to talk in very general terms. We're going to get a big picture of chapter 18, because I think it plays a part in what Jesus is trying to establish Uh, in this teaching at this pivotal point in time. So let me go ahead and say a word of prayer because I'm going to need it, like always, and then we'll get into our text. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we could be here together to sing praises to your name, to, to leave our heart out there for you and to glorify you with our gathering together, to learn from your word. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would teach all of us what we need to be taught today. And that we could develop the the type of character that Jesus has so we can be a good representation of your kingdom in the place in which we live, in our community. So, Father, help us to do that today so that when we leave here, 
we can help people see your face and see your love for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, just a reminder, if you haven't been with us, chapter 17, we had a very pivotal moment in the chronology of Jesus' life on earth. It was the transfiguration, funny term, like we never use that in real life talking about anything, but it's this basic idea that Jesus' essence, like his nature, transformed. And so his earthly presence, his earthly nature, just like you and I, human being stuff, it like transformed into his divine nature. Because remember, we believe that Jesus is God, that he stepped out of the glories of heaven and was born just like us and grew up just like we do to live amongst us so that he could become the perfect sacrificial lamb of God on the cross. And it's kind of a crazy thing to think about, but, you know, Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about that quite well, that he humbled himself and entered into our presence and, and became eventually obedient to death. So in three of the four Gospels, the transfiguration is really like that flag-in-the-ground moment of like, whoo boy, now we're turning the page and we are dead set. We are locked in on the cross this is the culminating moment that Jesus is working toward to fulfill the mission that he was sent to accomplish, to, to be wholly obedient to the will of God, and that will being that we would receive forgiveness, that we would be reconciled to him, that we would be adopted as sons and daughters in his family for all eternity through the death, burial, and resurrection of his spotless blameless, sinless son on the cross. Big deal stuff. And so in that moment in chapter 17, it is now we're turning the page and we are on a march to Calvary and we are, we are ramping up for the cross. And so Jesus starts getting a little more intense in his conversations with everybody. He's not really sugarcoating things nearly as much as he used to. And with his disciples, you can almost see that rhetoric taking place. It's like, come on, guys, it's been two years. You're really not catching on yet? Like, what's your deal? Like, you better start getting this because the clock is ticking. And when the clock runs out, I'm going to pass the baton to you, and you're going to take the ball and run with it. Like, that's what the, he's preparing them for. And so the teaching and the dynamics of the teaching and the emphasis of the teaching really starts to change. So when we get into chapter 18... There's all these little parables and paragraphs. And what our tendency as people to do is, is to be very myoptic in our view and zero in on this one little topic or this one little phrase and parse that like crazy and dissect it and be like, whoo, whoo, whoo. And sometimes when we do that, we miss the greater picture. So today, we're looking at the greater picture of chapter 18. And I'm just going to put the cards on the table and I really think that what we need to hear today from chapter 18 is what it looks like to have the character that God is asking us to have as kingdom citizens, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And this is really important because this is one of the reasons we wanted to go through the gospel of Matthew is a lot of us over the last couple of years with everything that's gone on politically, blah, 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 we talk about it all the time is some of us have uh, forgotten or maybe we haven't acted like we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven above all. That is where our citizenship lies, primarily first and above all things. 
And it's the, citizen, or the kingdom of God that will last for all eternity. No other kingdom, no other empire, no other nation will last to the, the length and the quality of the kingdom of heaven. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be primarily and utmost concerned about am I living like a citizen of the kingdom. So all that to say, the character of kingdom citizens must be shaped by the character of Christ. He is our example. He, his life, his living, his teaching, his ministry, his death, his sacrifice, all of these things are the model, they're the mold, they're the example that we should live up to and look to and allow our character to be shaped by his character, okay? So that's kind of the emphasis we're going to take through this thing. So let's dive in. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All right, so, <laughs> see, we're already off to a slow start here. I'm real sorry. Um, this is an important question, and it's a question that doesn't go away after this dialogue. It's something that's constantly being asked, and you can tell, even until the resurrection, that they're not really catching on to what's going on here, that they're still a little bit unsure about what Jesus is talking about in his bigger, more eternal picture that he's trying to paint, not just the temporary here and now. And we get a really nice picture of this in Mark chapter 10, right, in verse 35 through 45, that culminates in Jesus explaining his mission, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's in that episode, then, that you have James and John, the sons of thunder. Thank you for tagging me on that. This clip from uh, The Chosen, the series, The Chosen where Jesus is interacting with James and John, and they get their nickname, Sons of Thunder. It's artistically interpreted, but it's pretty fantastic anyways. And they basically want to, like, burn their enemies with fire from heaven. Like, I can get on board with that. Like, I'm kind of like that type of guy. Like, yes, smite my enemies with fire from heaven, those pagans. They, they dishonor you, Jesus. Burn them to ashes. And Jesus is just like lays into them <laughs> for their terrible heart and not caring for people who are different than them, who mock them and ridicule them because Jesus is going to voluntarily do that for all of our sakes, right? And he, you know, in jest basically he's like, you guys are like thunder. You know, in fact, that's your nickname from now on, Sons of Thunder. So it's pretty good. I appreciate that. Anyways, they come up to Jesus and they're like, well, hey, can we, can we have those chief seats in your kingdom? We know that you're going to come in and you're going to kick out the, uh, the enemy, and it's going to be crazy and all that stuff. And, and we want the number one and the number two seats. What is that noise? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? Everybody's looking around like, is thunder happening? Oh, Jim's back there being squirrely. All right, that's fine. <laughs> So anyways, they want, to, they want like positions of prestige and power in a uh, political temporary kingdom. It's just like, you guys aren't, you're not getting the bigger picture. You will eventually, but on we go, right? So this question, who is the greatest, it's part of our nature. Like we want to find out how we can go up the ladder. We want to find out how we can get the promotion, how we can get into a different position. We, we are those types of people. It's been that way forever. We want to be recognized. We want to be honored. We want to have influence. We want to have 
you know, authority. That's just the way people are. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. So he says, verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So this is just really a fascinating statement. He's like, oh, you guys, this isn't about like rising up and standing on the podium, you know, next to the gold medal winner. This isn't about that. This isn't about like now you have more power than you did previously or more fame or whatever. It's not about that. It's like if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to be good citizens of the kingdom, you got to become like a child, like, wow. And Jesus says this type of stuff over and over again. You got to become like a child. But, but what is it about a child that you got to become like? You got to go start wearing diapers again and eating Gerber baby food? No thanks. Like, that doesn't sound like a good time. But I think Jesus brings this up all the time. He says, humble yourself like a child, right? Because he wants us to have this characteristic of, of childlike humility and dependence. We talk about childlike faith sometimes, just like this reckless abandon to trust in people who are there to care for you, right? There's, there's this age of innocence where children just trust the adults in their lives. They haven't been burned. They haven't been scorned. They haven't learned how to break trust. They haven't been abused, you know, those sorts of things. They haven't discovered uh, the impact of lies and things of this nature. They, they just have this trust in the people who care for them. But they have a dependency on those people in their lives. And that's why it's so tragic when children don't have those people in their lives to care for them and provide for them and to, and to mold them. And that's why we get really sad about those sorts of things. But they just naturally have this humility and dependence on people to care for them. And, you know, like Rosie, I remember when she got to the age, and, you know, she doesn't really talk a whole lot, and she uses a little talker device to help her talk. And, and though she's eight years old now, she's still in that age where she doesn't think she can do everything on her own, luckily, because I'm not ready for that day. I'm not ready for teenagers, you know. And I remember when she first started learning how to talk and ask for help doing something, at first it was, help, please. Help, please, you know, with the little please sign. And then she, she moved into, I need help. And she'd say it like that, like this extended need. Like, I need help. And I just think it's the cutest thing ever, you know. And it's funny. Look, I don't think you have to have children to be a whole and complete person. But what I know is being a father now, God is using that to teach me great things. And so what I have learned from my relationship with my kid is, Oh, God, so many ways you want me to be more like Rosie. Just this absolute trust in me and this just dependency on me. It's a little overwhelming when you're the parent, right? Just to know, like, oh, my goodness. Like, you remember when you took your kid home from the hospital for the first time? Like, we had Rosie we, up in, in Beaverton at, at St. Vincent's up there. And that drive home was the longest drive ever of just absolute panic. <gasps> she made a noise back there. What's going on? <laughs> you know, like all those things. But I, I think to her, and I just think of this, I need help. 
And Jesus wants us to have that attitude toward him, toward God the Father, this Abba Father relationship that we care greatly about depending on him. I've said it a bunch of times before. You've heard me say this, but I truly believe this. I think it's really important. If you want to have a picture in your mind of what it looks like to be a mature Christian person, you're growing in your dependence on Christ. You're not getting to a place where you've arrived, where you think you can do things on your own, where you think you've got the strength and the power all by yourself to do it. You don't need him anymore. You've got it all figured out. That is the opposite direction that Jesus wants us to go. Jesus demonstrated this absolute dependency on the Father at all times and this reckless abandon and resolve to follow his will always. That we lose our sense of identity and our accomplishments and put our identity and our relationship to God as our Father and our dependence upon Him. That we would be the type of people that always approach God in everything we do with that phrase, I need help. I need help. I think that's, that's, that's lesson number one from this chapter today is if we want the character of Jesus, if, if we're going to develop this character of kingdom citizens that's shaped by the character of Jesus, we need to have a childlike humility and dependence on our Father God. I need help. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I'm not kidding. Jesus stops sugarcoating things. You know, so now we start shifting the focus to this idea of like the causing others to sin, putting up a stumbling block. And, and in a good rabbi fashion, where he's at, he uses illustrations that were readily available to him. They're in Capernaum, and right near there, there's this huge basalt fo- uh, formation that was used in that known world. They would make like millstones and grinding stones for grinding flour that were built there, made there, shaped there, whatever you want to call it, and then sold to different areas of the world. They, they found one of these from that location on the eastern border of Turkey, like almost 300 miles away. That's pretty good for something that heavy to go that far away to be used. So Jesus is basically in a, in a really good preacher type way using that illustration. Like, And if you cause one of these humble, innocent little ones who are trying to depend on their father for help, if you cause them to sin, if you bring them into evil, it'd be better for you to tie one of those around your neck and toss yourself into the Sea of Galilee over there. Yikes. Yikes. And he carries on. He says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. I see a lot of people in here with two eyes, two hands, and two feet, and apparently you think you're not sinners. Or you understand hyperbole, and you know that Jesus isn't literally saying, hey, we should cut off our hands and our feet. 
if we needed to do that, I would be like that guy from Monty Python on the Holy Grail. That's just like there. Oh, it's merely a flesh wound. You know, that whole scene. Maybe I shouldn't have said that in church, but you know what I'm saying. It's hilarious. That's what I would look like if that's what was required every time we sinned. And I'm not even sure that might be, that might be a little generous. But obviously Jesus is saying, look, we need to take sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. And here's the tough part about it. Sin is present in the world. And that's not going away until the final day comes and everything is redeemed. Like we've talked about before, all of creation is corrupted by sin. Every last atom of it. It's all messed up. When sin entered in the picture, sin corrupted completely. Yeah, there's good things and there's beautiful things and there's wonderful things and you can see God through it all, but there's still a corrupt nature to it because of sin. And because of that, then we've got to deal with the issue sin causes in this world and in life. And it's tough. It's either sin of our own omission or somebody else's sin or just the fact that creation's corrupted and we have crazy things that happen to us that don't make any sense, don't seem fair or right. It just stinks. And so we have this situation where we have to choose what are we going to like focus on? What's going to be the priority and the emphasis of our lives? Are we going to choose the things of eternity or choose the things of earth? Are we going to buy into our temptation to sin or are we going to discipline ourselves in such a way that we can focus on the eternal matters. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is, you know what, maybe some self-imposed limitations are not a bad thing for here and now so that you can guarantee yourself to enter into eternal life well. And maybe some self-imposed limitations are okay on occasion so you don't cause somebody else to stumble. So you don't cause somebody else to sin. And this can be a complicated thing. Again, we can have a whole other sermon on this, like to talk about these things. Like, for example, easy example, is alcohol sinful in and of itself? No. But for some people, absolutely it is. By itself, left alone, alcohol is not evil. Some people should not drink alcohol at all. Because they really struggle with self-control. And any hint of it, any drop of it, any smell of it, any situation where that's been involved triggers a whole lot of things that bring them to a point where they're abusing it, they're lying to people, they're getting angry at people, they're becoming abusive, or just fill in the blank with a variety of things. Uh, look, I spent seven months in a living counseling program for a sin addiction. And there are certain things that I don't do anymore where I have to limit myself because there's triggering things that bring me right back to that. And I don't want to do that because that particular sin struggle could bring me to a place that absolutely destroys my family because I've seen it done to other people. For me, for example, there are certain shows that everyone watches everybody watches and all people want to talk about is the latest and greatest show that's on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is. 
And so the wife and I were always like, man, all these people are talking about this show. It must be really cool. You know, even, even Christian people we know. So we, we should probably check it out. So we start watching it because we suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out. <laughs> we want to be relevant and cool and hip. And we start watching said show, and it's like, oh, this is pretty interesting. Ooh, what a character development and a hook. And then all of a sudden, once they kind of get you in, oh, someone's naked. Oh, they're doing that. Wow, that's really violent. I can't believe that's happening right now, and i got to shut it down. And sometimes the wife's like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, I don't have a problem with that. But she knows I do because I'm the one that went to a seven-month living counseling program to deal with. I don't need to see naked people on the TV anymore. Just don't. So, yeah, it's a bummer to not have the conversation with all the cool kids about the latest episode of fill-in-the-blank TV series. And yeah, it makes me sometimes feel like I'm a real conservative stick in the mud. But you know what? I'd rather maintain a good relationship with Jesus and a high value of my wife and be the father that I need to be in the house that I need to be in, then make sure I'm involved in everything everybody else is doing. And I'm not telling you to watch what or not watch what, whatever. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I know for me, like, I have to put some limitations on my life because I care more about developing the character of Jesus in my life so that I can be a good representation of the kingdom of heaven here and now. Am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. Do I make mistakes quite a bit? Yes, I absolutely do. But there are certain things that I just know I can't go down that road. So for me, it is better to cut off my hand, not watch TV show, to cut off my foot, not consume said product, to pluck out my eye, not participate in this thing, then do everything everyone else in the world is doing. You know, the hard part is, is we get to the topic of like causing others to sin. That gets to be really complicated because if we were really, really literal and diligent about not causing other people to sin, we'd all be monks living in a cave. Because the hard part is, there's things I do and say that just offend people and get them angry at me, and that's really tough. You know how that is. But I think the general principle is, if you have a dear friend who's an alcoholic and you invite them over to your house, maybe you can go without a beer with your burger for one night. Do you care about your friend more than your beer with your burger for one night? Even if they tell you, oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's not okay. It's not. Maybe we can say no to some things that we enjoy that we don't find to be sinful for the sake of other people on occasion. Maybe that might just be a little bit like Jesus, and maybe that's the principle he's talking about here, that we put a priority to the eternal things over the earthly things, that we choose kingdom principles and kingdom practices more than we choose the principles and the practices of our culture here and now. Next thing, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see their face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, 
Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay, a couple things in here that I just really don't have the time to get into, like the whole angels associated with sheep and uh, that. Uh, <laughs> you're on your own for that one today, all right? That's, uh, that's a whole other topic. But we get this idea, this picture of a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep. He's lost one. He leaves the majority of them who didn't wander off to go find the one who did. And when he finds it, there's all kinds of rejoicing. Luke's gospel paints this picture that, that a big party is thrown. It's incredible. This guy, the shepherd, finds the sheep. He's like, yeah, I found the lost sheep. This is awesome. And he calls his friends up like, hey, guess what? I found it. Let's party. Woo, you know. And what would a good Jew and a shepherd do in a party like that? They'd have a meal. What do you think they'd cook? Rack of lamb. It's kind of disturbing just a little bit, you know. So it's not about having this whole number <laughs> of 100 sheep because he probably picked one out of the 99 that stayed behind and said, you know what, we'll just go with this one tonight. Woo-hoo, I found the one that was lost. It's crazy. So what, <laughs> what do we, why such an emphasis on like the finding the lost? And you can see this heart from God and you can see this to be the theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, is that God values those that are lost and on the outside looking in. This is over and over and over. So this is a characteristic that we must develop, that we have a value for the outsiders and the lost. So much so that when someone who's astray, someone who's far from God, someone who who abandoned God, who rejected him and ran away, that when they come back, when they make their way to Jesus, that we are excited about it. We have a party because it is great. God is stoked about it, and so should we. And we should value it so much that we're willing to do what is necessary to go and find that which is lost, to tear down walls, to tear down barriers, to invite outsiders in. This is a really important emphasis in the Gospel of Matthew. From the very beginning in the genealogy, right? We say this all the time again because it's important. God's kingdom is open to anyone, anyone who wants to participate in the thing that God is doing. And time and time again, we see Jesus inviting and making a point to invite people who should not be there. People who the religious establishment have deemed to be less than or on the outside looking in. People like women, People like cripples, people with diseases they can't control, people who are not Jews, children, and the like. They're on the outside looking in. They're lesser than. And we get this sense over and over again from Jesus and all of his interactions and his teaching that God cares about the disenfranchised, those that the culture that the world would deem as less than the outsiders looking in. So as we get back to life without masks and we move on and hardly anyone's talking about COVID anymore. We've all shifted our focus to Ukraine, right? Funny how that works. We don't need to go down that road too far. As we shift our focus back to other things in this life and we kind of work on getting back what we used to have, We better not be building up any walls in our little country club of Christianity here. 
at all. We're not going to build an empire that is just contained in the four walls of this building. We are an outpost representation of the kingdom of heaven in a community that needs Jesus. This moment we have right now is a rallying point that we can all be reminded by the working of the Holy Spirit that our mission is out there, not in here. As much as we love to come and as important as it is, this whole thing is so that we can go and seek and save the lost and bring them to know Jesus. So do you value your comfort? Do you value your seat? Do you value your, your way, your rights? Or do you value eternal things, the lost and the outsiders more? We must have a value for the outsiders and the lost Coming up next, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you, by, uh, for the, done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Okay. That's all, that should be its own sermon again. <laughs> by itself. And this is one that comes up a lot. A lot of people argue about this. Uh, how we operate as a church. Do we have a discipline thing, a conflict resolution thing that we follow this protocol? Here's a formula, and we're very strict on how we follow it and how we deal with uh, offenses that are done and conflicts within the church and all these things. And there's appropriate times for that. There's some things like some environments where this formula isn't exactly it, you know, which is weird to say, <laughs> weird to say out loud. But, you know, sometimes... Say, if, if you're employed somewhere and you do something that is against the terms of that employment, there's not always this long process, therefore, of you to keep your job. Usually, it's, there's moments where it's like, well, you did that and you're terminated. That's what it is, you know, point blank. So this formula doesn't work for every single situation, but what we're talking about here is if your brother sins against you, so Jesus is almost addressing, it seems like, the person who's been sinned against, right? The person who's been offended by some sin of another person. And this is really important for us to have the courage and the boldness to go address the issues. Why? Why? What's the bigger principle here? Reconciliation. The majority of the time I'm finding in life, we get all offended because somebody did something to us. That person doesn't even know they offended us. That person doesn't even know they, that they sinned against us. And here we are getting all bitter and mad and worked up about what somebody said to us. And the relationship's broken and they don't even know it. And now we've gossiped about it. We've shared it out on Facebook in cryptic ways without using their name, right? 
And we've told our neighbor, and we've told our brother, and we've told our friend and our co-workers, and we haven't even addressed the issue with the person that sinned against us. All right? That's how life operates most of the time, and that's, the way, that's not the way it should be. Jesus is like, we need to care about reconciliation. So if a sin has been done against you, you need to go and address the issue and enlighten the person, give them an opportunity to repent of their sin, to, t- to turn away from their sin, and to apologize and restore the relationship. And Jesus is like, and keep it as small as possible until that doesn't work. And then bring somebody else in. Again, keep it as small of a group as possible. We don't need to let the whole town know about the issue you have with somebody. Let's, let's work on this one step at a time. And if they just don't repent, treat them like a tax collector and a Gentile. What does Jesus say about treating people like tax collectors and Gentiles? Love them. Invite them to your house for dinner. Kind of a weird thing. All that to say, we all get so offended, it seems like, in our world today. And it's not a high value of our culture and our world to seek reconciliation for when we're offended. And Jesus is saying, that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom is about reconciliation. We must be a people who care about reconciliation, seeking it above all things. We must pursue every avenue for reconciliation. Because that's what God did. Our sin is an offense to God. It breaks our relationship with God. And we would not know that if he didn't tell us so. And you know what he did to reconcile us to him? To to bring us into a right relationship with him? He sacrificed his own son for our sake. He did everything that was needed to be done. He pursued every avenue. I mean, the whole Old Testament is opportunity and opportunity, knowing of, <laughs> that this, those opportunities are going to continue to be squandered and rejected, and this is going to be it, the sacrifice of my son Jesus for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's one of the key components of the gospel message is we have been reconciled to God, and as Paul says, now we are ministers of reconciliation. God making his appeal to the world through us. That God has forgiven us of our sin and is inviting us into a relationship with him. Pretty powerful. So if we're all for being reconciled to God, we should be all for being reconciled to others. It's not easy. It's tough work, but we must pursue it. We don't always get it right, but we must pursue it. I know I've messed it up a lot. Now, the last section to wrap this up, and probably the most important because a lot of things come built off of this block here. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Okay, that's really weird, right? Seven times in their mind was like a, a completeness, right? Seven days of creation, it was all completed. At that point, it's a perfect number. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, that's cute, but more. Like, way more. 
Like you can't count how much more. When you think you've gone enough, nope, then more than that. You never stop forgiving other people of their sins against you. See, it flows right out of this reconciliation issue of people sinning against you. And he goes and he tells them a story, right? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and see, this is where you underline and pay real close attention when Jesus says, therefore, and the kingdom of heaven is like. Sometimes we think, oh, man, Jesus is too cryptic. I don't understand things. And yet he tells us straight up, like, this is what it's like. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. In other words, three lifetimes of wages. So let's pretend you're 84 years old. That's just an arbitrary number. And you're going to die tomorrow. You know it because you're going to die. And you take the time to calculate how much money you made over the course of your life. And was it all worth it? Now, times three, (laughs) okay? Three lifetimes worth of wages is basically what this guy owes him. How in the world does he get that debt? And there's no way he could pay it off, right? Hyperbole a little bit here. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment be made. So he's willing to take a a short on his debt to sell this guy, to sell his kid, to sell his wife into slavery. We're talking about legalized human trafficking and sell everything they have so that he could get something out of this debt that's owed. It's pretty intense. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Mm, Fat chance. There's no way you're going to pay him back. No way. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, which, okay, that's pretty incredible, right? Just had compassion and forgave him everything. And he did nothing to pay sin. Just forgave him. So that same servant goes out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is like pennies comparatively. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Look, I don't know why we miss this one so often. Because there's a lot of Christians out there that are still harboring bitterness and resentment towards somebody else who offended them, who sinned against them, who did something wrong to them. And you probably have a hundred justifications in your mind why you don't need to forgive them. Guess what? Your justifications are straw man. 
they're total baloney, and you have no justification to not forgive anyone. I remember when I was preaching in prison, I've told the story before, there was this guy who tried to intimidate me the very first weekend I was in prison preaching. He came up to me, he looked me dead in the eyes as he squatted down next to me, he said, what would you do if you walked in on two men raping your daughters? Would you kill them? I did not have a daughter at the time. Maybe today my answer would be different. But in that moment, I had this really weird out-of-body experience where I felt like my consciousness was standing over here watching my stupidity unfold before my very eyes when I said to him, no, I don't think I would do that. And he tells me then, your eyes are full of brown. You know what he's trying to say. But that's actually what he said. I'm not just softening the story. That's what he said. But you know what we mean. And I said to him, and this is the part that started getting me all shaking in my heart racing. I said to him, your anger is going to lead you to hell. What? What a dumb thing to say to a man who's much bigger than you and apparently is in prison for killing people. And he just looks back at me like this, stands up and walks off. And I'm just like, um, um, you know, just like, ah, I'm sweating. I'm like, what did I just do? I am going to die in this place. You know, this is so scary. I get up, I preach, I make stupid comments because I'm so flustered, like I'm talking about sin. And I'm like, all of us are sinners, but it's not like anyone's killed anyone, right? (laughs) Oh, this isn't a country church. We're in prison. Yes, you have. (laughs) You know, it was terrible. And eventually this guy came back, and he was like, hey, man, I just appreciate you being straight up, and I just really was good to chat. I'm like, what? So confused. You know, month after month, he'd come, and he'd seek me out, he'd shake my hand, he'd call me his friend, because I was, I guess, bold enough to call him on it. But you know what's crazy? The world would tell us that that man is justified in his actions. And again... If I was in the same situation now, I'm not really confident I wouldn't do the same thing. But even Jesus is asking that man to forgive those who sinned against him. Now, they're not around for him to forgive them to his face, but he can forgive them from his heart still. And we're all sitting here going, no, why does he need to forgive them? Why? Well, here's the hard thing. All of our sin is just as grotesque and offensive to God as the actions of those two men against that guy's family. Now, our sin might not be weighted on the same scale or have the same consequences in this world, but all sin equally condemns us to an eternity apart from God. All sin. From the littlest lie to the most heinous crime imaginable, all sin condemns us to an eternity apart from God. And we love, love to hear about how God has forgiven us of all our sin. We beg for it. 
Every week we have communion and we reflect on the sins we've committed this week and we ask for forgiveness once again and we trust in his faithfulness to forgive us once again. And then when somebody offends us, nope! You offended me. I don't have to forgive you. You call yourself a Christian? Yes, you do. Because Jesus is pretty blunt with this and this is really tough. If we don't forgive others of their sins against us, he will not forgive us. That is a hard pill to swallow. That's a hard pill to swallow. But if we want to have the character of kingdom citizens that is shaped by the character of Christ, that character is one that sees all of the worst offenses that anyone could ever do against you and sacrifices oneself, one's pride, one's self-reliance, one's justification, sacrifices it all, nails it to the cross in order to forgive others because that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has forgiven those other people. We should too. And if we can do that, we will be the most clear, most incredible, most impactful reflection of Jesus here and now that the world's ever seen. It's really hard. Maybe it takes a little bit of humility and dependence on God. Maybe it takes a little bit of prioritizing eternal values over earthly values. Maybe it takes a little valuing those who are on the outside and the lost. Maybe it takes a little bit of desire for reconciliation. All these characters must be built in us. And hallelujah, it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of making us to be more like Jesus. What he's asking for us is to simply humble ourselves before him, trust in his grace, Trust in his work and continue to repeat time and time again, Lord, I need help. Let's pray. Father, we fall incredibly short of your character and of Christ's likeness. But Lord, you're calling us to Christ's likeness anyways. You're wanting to develop that character in us so we can be a clear representation of your kingdom. And Lord, we want all these things for ourselves. We want to be reconciled to you. We want to be brought in. We want to be included in your kingdom. We want to be a part of your family. We want all of our sins to be forgiven, even the deep, dark secrets of our hearts that nobody else knows about, that we would be absolutely ashamed of if they were made public. We want you to forgive those things. And yet, Lord, we have a hard time being like Christ toward others. Whether it be accepting them, valuing them, reconciling with them, or forgiving them, Lord, we need your help. And we're so grateful that, as you said with the disciples in the upper room, that you would send him, and now we have the helper, the Holy Spirit, to do that. So we just invite you, Lord, have your way in us. Make us to be more like Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And to find out more about Christian Church, please visit our website at cconline.cc or visit our YouTube page by searching Christian Church Warrington and Napa for more video content.